Lord, here we are, your people gathered together with a variety of thoughts, activities from this past Christmas week, thoughts about a new year, and just what you're going to do. But tonight, we pause. And our thoughts and our focus, we now place completely upon you to worship our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May this worship time be sweet as we look to the Savior. It's in His name. Amen. This is a recently printed $20 bill. The changes in color, style, and design were enacted to frustrate counterfeiters because fake money is a major problem due to advances in digital printing. The crime of counterfeiting of currency is one of the oldest crimes in history. During the American Revolution, the British counterfeited U.S. currency in such large amounts that continental currency soon became worthless. Genuine U.S. currency has thin blue and red fibers embedded in the paper. Counterfeiters simulate these fibers by printing tiny colored lines. Law enforcement agencies estimate that one in every 10,000 bills in circulation is counterfeit. As a bank teller, I've been trained to recognize counterfeit money. Being that I work with money all day, it's easy to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. I've handled counterfeit money before, and there's no substitute for the real thing. And just as counterfeiters imitate real money, some people try to pretend that they are real Christians when their faith is not really placed in Jesus Christ. This brings us to our teaching today at Calvary as we consider John chapter 15 and discover how to identify a genuine Christian. Because just as there is fake money in circulation, there can also be counterfeit Christians in our churches. As you prepare for the new year, nothing is more important than for you to be sure that you are a real Christian with an eternal future in heaven. Listen carefully today as Pastor Skip Heitzig tells us how to keep the main thing the main thing. We can accept no imitations for genuine salvation. Let's turn to John chapter 15 as we find out what it means to abide in Christ. Good evening. Would you turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 15 tonight. A little boy went in his backyard with a baseball and a bat, and he shouted out loud, I'm the greatest batter in all the world. Tossed the ball up in the air, took a swing at it, missed it, and yelled out, strike one. Undaunted, he picked the ball up again, threw it up in the air, saying, I'm the greatest batter in the world, took a swing at it, missed it again, strike two, he said. At this point, he paused and looked at the bat and the ball, spit in his hands like any good little boy would do, threw the ball up again. Before that, he shouted, I'm the greatest batter in the world. Swung again, and he missed it. And he sighed, and he said, man, I am the greatest pitcher in the world. <laughs> That's one optimistic little boy. You might say it's one unrealistic little boy, since the main object of baseball is to actually hit the ball. What is the main object in Christianity? What's the, what's the main thing? What's the purpose? What should we be aiming at? It's not just throwing up a few Bible verses in the air saying, I'm the greatest Christian in all the world. 
The main thing of Christianity is Christ and our relationship to Him. That's it. That's the bottom line. Christ and how you and I relate to Him. I've entitled this message, Keeping the Main Thing the Main Thing, or you might call it, How to Have a Satisfying Relationship with God Through the Lord Jesus Christ. I've often thought in my mind, if I were to preach one last message, what would it be on? And I've always come back to John 15 because it's the main thing. Now, let me just give you the context before we read the first eight verses. This night was in the upper room with the disciples. It was a very special evening. It was the last meal that Jesus would have with his men, his followers, before he would be arrested and then taken away to be crucified. And it was a very uh, intense time of discipleship. It wasn't just a last meal. It was sort of like a coach with those last few words of encouragement and instruction before the team leaves the locker room and hits the field. Or the last words that uh, an officer would have with his men before sending them off to the battlefield. And so this intense time of discipleship is spent alone, Jesus and his men. I read of a carpenter who uh, was getting older. He wanted to retire. He just wanted to relax a little bit, so he told his boss he was quitting. The boss was sad to hear that, but he understood. And he said, I want you to do me one personal favor. Would you build me one last house? So as a favor, this elderly carpenter applied his skills, his tools, and he built one house. But his heart wasn't in it. All he wanted to do was retire. He wanted to slow down. So the workmanship was shoddy. Uh, the materials were inferior, but he finally finished it. And when it was all done, his boss came to him with keys to the front door, and he said, this is my parting gift to you. The house that you just built, it's yours. If only the carpenter would have known that he was going to live in that house he would have done things differently. My point in sharing it is this. It's your life. You make choices. You are building your life daily by choices you make. Make the right ones. Aim at the right thing. Keep the main thing the main thing because it's no one else's life but yours. Now, just like that little boy who threw up those three balls, strike one, strike two, strike three, I'm going to throw up three points in this message. Um, a few key words we're going to note, and we're going to see if we're hitting those balls or not. There's three key words I draw your attention to as we read verses one through eight. The first is the word abide, and I'll bring out a point in a moment. The second key word is the word prune. And the third key word is the word fruit. Abide, prune, and fruit. Keep those words in mind as we go through this. He begins in verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples." The first key word I draw your attention to is the word abide. And here's the principle I want to draw out. Three ways that you can keep the main thing the main thing or have a satisfying relationship with God through Christ. Principle number one, maintain the connection. Maintain the connection. The key word abide. I don't mean the Calvary Connection radio program, though we'll keep that on the air. But I'm talking about this connection with Christ. Maintain the connection. Um, a grapevine was a common analogy that symbolized the nation of Israel. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can still see terraced hillsides where in ancient times and in modern times, grapes are grown so much so that grapes are still one of the symbols of national Israel. And the Jews were familiar with the analogy of a vineyard being their nation. Because there was that scripture in Isaiah chapter 5 that was familiar to them. Isaiah says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song about my, the vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. And you go down a few verses and it says, for the nation of Israel is the vineyard of God. So they knew what the analogy meant. Vineyard means the house of Israel. But notice in this story, God is the owner. Jesus Christ is the vine. Or you might say the main stem or the trunk. And we are the branches connected to that trunk. Uh, in grape-growing lingo, we would be called the cordons or the tendrils or the canes. A little perspective is, is due here. You're a twig. It says you're a branch. You're a twig. Now that's not much to brag about. You might be a very smart twig. You might be a very wealthy twig. But you're just a twig. And twigs aren't all that impressive by themselves. But, when those twigs are connected to something, connected to someone, they're valuable. Your value comes in your connection to the vine, to Christ. Now, just a note here. You cannot have a relationship with the gardener, God, unless you're connected to the vine, Christ. If you're not connected to Christ, there's no life, no fruit. You must be connected to Christ or you can have no relationship at all with God in heaven. You might want to just go back one chapter, chapter 14, put in another way, verse 6, without the analogy of the vineyard. 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Same truth, 
different lingo. To have a relationship with the gardener, you must be connected to the vine. Now, a few things about this connection. First, it can't be just a ritual connection. Go to our text and look at the sixth verse once again. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. In other words, it must be a true connection with the true vine that produces true fruit. Now, many of the Jews believed that if they kept their ceremonies, their rituals, over and over and over again, they gave them a connection with God. So they would refrain from unkosher foods. They would keep the Sabbath. They would wash their hands in a certain way. They would give alms. That gave them, they thought, a connection with God. I wonder how many here tonight are like I was, grew up in a religious home, kept all the ceremonies, all the rituals, and I thought I was connected to God because I attended church, because I had been baptized, because I had been confirmed. I was connected by the rituals. But verse 6, Jesus seems to indicate that not every branch is a true branch. There must be a vital connection more than a ritual connection. Now, does it even make sense to think that God in heaven would require me getting wet in order to get to heaven? Well, you can't get to heaven unless you get wet. you got to get baptized. That gives you the edge. Does it even make sense that God would require the ritual apart from true faith and commitment to Him? So much so that anybody who gets wet could now rely on getting to heaven because they got wet. It wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I was 18 years old when I discovered this. I had up to that point trusted in the rituals that I had kept, the ceremonies that I maintained. I thought I was okay with God because I had been baptized and confirmed. When I was 18 years old, I realized that it wasn't the ritual. I needed some reality. The emphasis up to that point was on me, my deeds, my actions, my rituals that I kept. My faithfulness in keeping the rituals gave me the edge. Do you remember John the Baptist down at the Jordan River when all the people came to be baptized by him? And he said some words that they probably didn't like to hear. Words like, you brunch of snakes! Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Whoa, what an opener for a sermon. In other words, if you guys coming to this river think that you're okay because you're getting baptized, you're wrong. That doesn't give you the edge. He said, bring forth fruits that befit repentance. Paul the Apostle was a guy who thought he was connected by rituals. He says his testimony in Philippians 3, I was circumcised the eighth day. I, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, the stock of Israel. According to the law, I was blameless. But then he said, all those things that I counted as something important, I now see them as rubbish, refuse, dung, that I might win Christ and know him. They didn't give him the edge. They didn't connect him. So... You throw the religious ball up in the air, you try to swing at it, strike one. Also, the connection can't just be an ancestral connection. 
In other words, well, I know that my parents were good Christians and my grandparents, so that must make me okay. Ooh, beware. The whole point of the parable was that the Jews thought because they were sons and daughters of Abraham that they had some edge with God. Once again, it was John the Baptist who was at the Jordan River. And while he was baptizing at the Jordan River, he said, and don't think within your own selves we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up out of these stones children to Abraham. In other words, they were trusting in their ancestry. They thought that salvation got passed down to their offspring. Now imagine how shocked some of them were when years later Jesus was preaching and they proudly said, we are sons of Abraham. We are of our father Abraham. And Jesus turned to them and said, you are of your father the devil. And his deeds you do. He was a liar from the beginning. And so are you. That, that shattered them. Or what about the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 16? You know it well, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man died and was taken to Hades. And he cried out because he was Jewish. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Question. What was he doing there? What was he doing in hell? He was Jewish. Here's the point. Heritage doesn't give you the edge necessarily. You cannot trust in somebody else's relationship with God for your own relationship with God. You can't say, well, my grandparents or my parents, it must be your own. God has no grandchildren, only children. So it can't be a ritual connection. It can't be an ancestral connection. It must be a personal connection. Now, I draw your attention to the fourth verse. Look at that word abide in its context. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There's a great translation of the Bible, the New Testament, I'll call the Weist translation, that gives it a word-for-word -word expanded idea. And this is how Weist translates it. Maintain a constant living communion with me and I with you. Maintain a constant living communion with me and I with you. In other words, it is personal and it is an intimate relationship. You need your own connection, your own conversion, your own relationship with God. It happened for me in 1973. It was in July. And it was that evening when I turned, by God's grace, the ritual and ancestral connection into a personal and real one. And I asked Jesus to be my Savior, my Lord, take over my life. Huge difference. The connection was made. A couple years ago, I was given a cool gift. A 1942 Harley-Davidson given to me by a friend and a businessman in this town. When he gave it to me, it was completely cosmetically restored. It looked brand new. One problem, didn't run. It was all show and no go. It gleamed, it shined, it was classic looking, but there were no pistons in it, there were no rings in it, there wasn't a crankshaft in it. 
And so for the last couple of years, we've been working on it. Just got it out of the shop the other day, drove it for the first time at a top speed of 45 miles an hour. But the difference is now it really works. It fulfills its intended purpose. Before it looked great, outwardly was beautiful, but it didn't run. And there are so many people that don't have a real personal connection with Christ. It's just cosmetic. Listen to what Keith Miller writes. He said, It's never ceased to amaze me that we Christians have developed a kind of selective vision which allows us to be deeply and sincerely involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally pagan in the day-in and day-out guts of our business lives and never realize it. Something else about this connection, it must be a continual connection. A true disciple stays connected. Again, verse uh, 6, look at it. If anyone does not abide, maintain a constant living communion with me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. The word abide, the Greek word is meno, and it is often translated remain. The idea is that it's maintaining a constant, continual, remaining relationship with the vine. Beware of those people who say, oh yeah, I used to go to church. I used to read my Bible. I used to pray all the time. I used to be such a devout believer in Christ. Operative term, used to. Listen, your past expressions of Christianity are totally invalid unless they are translated into a modern now experience. All of those past expressions are invalid unless they're translated into a modern, contemporary, present experience. John writes these words, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. That's the connection. So that's the first point. That's the first key word, abide. Maintain the connection. Second principle is based on verse 2, the word prune in that verse. And here's the principle. Allow for correction. Maintain the connection, but allow for correction. Now, the second verse, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. You ought to feel pretty good if you're being tested, cut, if uh, the Lord's meddling in your life. It proves that you're connected. He won't just leave you alone. He prunes that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, don't misunderstand. God won't make you into a prune. It's not God's directive to give you a prune face. Uh, you know, there was a time in church history when it was thought that the more sad you look, the more spiritual you must be. And so the clergy wore black, dark clothes, never smiled, never joked, because they thought spirituality must be sour, dour, dim. That's not the idea of prune 
The idea is to cut away. The Greek katharizo means to cleanse by pruning. Here's the idea. The most, most important job that a gardener had to do was to cut away growth so that better growth could come the next season. A farmer would cut away two types of growth. Number one, dead wood, because that's where disease would be bred on the vine. But number two, sometimes the farmer would cut away living tissue so that the life and the sap that gave life wouldn't all be wasted by extraneous growth. So cut away some of the growth so that the growth would be better, more concentrated next season. One flower grower who won first place for his prize chrysanthemums said, we concentrate all of the strength of the plant in one or two blossoms. If we would allow it to bear the flowers, all of the flowers that it could, none would be worth showing. If you want a prize specimen, you must be content with a single chrysanthemum instead of a score. Here's the point spiritually. God removes things that we have allowed to live that aren't for our best growth. Oh, we hold on to them. We love them. We're convinced they should stay. And God says, no, I'm cutting it away for your growth. God wants to cut away things like bad habits, unhealthy activities you still allow to go on, rotten attitudes. And you sometimes wonder, why do I get these trials in the same area of my life? Because God is still meddling trying to bring good fruit. We've all felt the knife, haven't we? We've all seen and felt the gardener prune away things in our life. And let's face it, we hate it. We don't like it. We say things like, if you're a God of love, why would you allow this to happen to me? You know, I've often wondered if a grape branch could speak. And he saw that farmer coming after with that sharp knife. What would it say? It would probably doubt the good intentions of the farmer. It would probably think the farmer doesn't love me. He's going to cut me away. He's going to take off some of the growth. No, the cutting, the pruning, doesn't prove the farmer doesn't love. It proves the farmer does love. Because what is he after? It says in that verse, more fruit. Prune us. Several ways. The first way is by the word, scripture. If you look in verse uh, 3, you are already clean, same word, katharos, katharizo, to cleanse by pruning. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The Bible prunes us. It has a cleansing effect. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and go, oh, that's such a comfort. Other times we read it and we go, eh. And that's one verse we don't underline because it confronts us. It's powerful. The Scripture condemns sin. The Scripture subdues the flesh. The Bible inspires holiness. And the Word promotes growth. You all know, probably by heart, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Let me read that to you in a more modern translation because we sometimes lose the impact. The Word of God is full of living power, writes the author. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. 
That is why so often the Bible is filled with warnings and reproofs and rebukes that sometimes cut very, very deeply. So sometimes God prunes by the word. Other times God prunes by experiences, what we would call trials or adversity. Suffering has a way of cutting away fleshly desires quicker than anything else. Now I thought about this, and I think that you could take all of the trials, let's call them God's pruning, and you could put them into two categories. One would be corrective pruning. I'll explain in a moment. The other is constructive pruning. Corrective pruning is the things God does in your life to get you back on the right track. For the Bible says all of us like sheep have gone astray. That's just how we're built naturally in the flesh. So God will sometimes correctively do things to bring us on the right path. Every parent understands this. This is why we spank children. Why do parents spank? Because they get off on seeing their child writhe in pain? (laughs) No, because the parent loves the child and wants to correct behavior. In a similar way, the Bible says, do not despise the chastening, that's another word for spankings, of the Lord. For whoever the Lord loves, he spanks or he chastens. Have you ever seen a brat? I'm not asking you to name names or nudge somebody next to you or look across the church with a stare. But we all know one when we see one. A brat is simply a child left to himself or herself without any correction. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And C.S. Lewis said, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Isn't that good? Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. But then there's constructive pruning. And this is where God takes us. We're growing. We're, we're bearing fruit. But there's more to go. So he allows things to happen or even causes things to happen that will knock off the rough edges. Somebody once said, adversity is the diamond dust by which heaven polishes its jewels. You're growing. You're doing so well. But God knows you could grow further. Oh, but you're already abiding. I know, but he's going to prune and he's going to construct you. That's what James had in mind. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish his work. Here's why. That you may be mature and complete. A Steinway grand piano, a concert grand piano, is comprised of 243 taut strings that produce a force of 40,000 pounds 40,000 pounds on an iron frame in a wooden case. After it's assembled, it's taken to what they call the pounder room, and each key is pounded 10,000 times. Beaten, pounded, to prove its worth. The end result of that Steinway concert grand is that out of great tension can come great beauty. 
And out of great pounding can come great beauty. And that's the purpose of the pruning. Great beauty. Or as Jesus put it here, more fruit. Which will answer a question for you. If you've ever asked, why do bad things happen to good people? Be careful what you call bad. Because what you may call bad may actually be good. Because the end result is fruit. Joseph was caught by his brothers, sold as a slave into Egypt, mistreated, put in prison, falsely accused, suffered greatly. But then there was a turn of events that made him the number two man in terms of authority over the whole world. The things that happened to Joseph, are they bad or good? Well, it depends who you ask. Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people to stay. So be careful what you assign the title bad to. It might be the very tool that God is using to work his best work. So abide, prune. There's a third word, and we'll close with this. It's the word fruit. It's mentioned five times in our text. And here's the principle. Aim at production. Aim at production. If you would look at verse 2 and notice a progression with me. First of all, Jesus uses the term fruit. Then in the same verse toward the end, he uses the term more fruit. And then if you look with me at verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. That's progress. You're bearing fruit, great. Now you get pruned. He, more fruit. You get pruned again, much fruit. So there should always be a progression of growth in the Christian life. Fruitfulness. Aim at production. Now, I want to cover this briefly because we don't have time, but a lot of people will ask, well, what exactly is fruit? The Bible calls several things fruit people that you win to Christ by your testimony. They're converted. Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Praise to God is called fruit in Hebrews 13, verse 15. Holiness is called fruit by Paul in Romans 6, verse 22. And giving of your resources is called fruit unto God also in Romans chapter 15. Now, a couple things about fruit. Number one, fruit is noticeable. You walk by a tree, and how do you tell if it's an apple tree or a, or a pear tree or an orange tree? By what is noticeable, what's hanging on it, the fruit. You know, trees don't grow signs that say, I am an apple tree. Malus pumilla, as they would say in that world. You can only tell it's an apple tree by looking at what is visible on it, noticeable, and that is apples. Lack of fruit in a person's life shows that genuine salvation never took place. They have not had a connection with the vine. Now, you don't have to guess if a person is a believer. And I've heard people say things like, well, I think he really is a believer deep down inside. Well, that's the whole point of the analogy. 
The whole point of using the analogy of fruit is you don't have to dig deep down inside. How do you tell if it's an apple tree? Well, deep down inside, I believe it is. You can tell by the fruit that's on it. Now, I'm not saying everybody is always the same amount of fruit. Jesus gave a parable and he said some grow 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But the point is, you're going to see something some visible change that has occurred. It's noticeable. You can look at the fruit and say, ah, it's one of God's. Not only is it noticeable, but fruit is natural. Fruit is natural. It's the normal output of a connection. As long as the branch stays connected to the vine, naturally it's going to produce fruit. Fruit is simply the unfolding of life. You don't have to work hard at it. You just hang in there. Ever seen an apple tree sweat? Go, I'm going to harm, strive. Apple, that was hard work. No, it's so easy. It's so effortless. All it does is maintain a constant living communion with the vine, and the natural result is fruit. And here's the point. Stay close to Jesus. Love Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. And you will naturally, effortlessly bear fruit. It will be noticeable. It will be natural. A third and final thing, fruit is nourishing. What's the purpose of a fruit tree? To bless others. It doesn't produce fruit for itself. An apple tree doesn't eat its own fruit. No, fruit is grown for the blessing, the nourishment of other people. If the life of God is inside of you, then the life of God will flow from you. Jesus stood up in John chapter 7, the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, not only will you be satisfied of your own thirst, you will help quench the thirst of others. The life that is in you will be the life that flows from you. Twenty-two and a half years ago, when I moved here from Huntington Beach, California, I had a neighbor who had a lemon tree in his backyard. It was so close to the fence that half of it grew on my side, and I was a blessed man. I had lemonade all the time because the law says whatever grows on my side belongs to me. His fruit abounded to my account. I enjoyed it. Our lives should be that way. Should be so spilling over into people's lives that when we're around them, our fruit is noticeable, but our fruit is nourishing to them. It's a blessing to them. Abide. Abide in Jesus. Inside the Albuquerque Aquarium is the shark exhibit. It's the most popular exhibit. It's an actually, it's a great aquarium. This city should be proud of it. You walk through that tunnel and those sharks go right overhead and they're on both sides. A huge aquarium. Some of them are six, seven, eight feet in length. Now we're told that if you take a shark when it's a baby, just a few inches long, and you confine it in a small aquarium, that it will stay very small. 
And they tell us you can have a fully mature shark that's six inches long. Fully mature, fully grown, midget shark. But if you take it and place it in the Pacific Ocean, it'll go to its normal length, eight feet. Over the years, I have met some of the cutest little six-inch Christians. <laughs> regulated by small surroundings. Hey, we're facing a new year. We're facing new challenges. How about the thought that your arena this year could be bigger than ever before? That you could be as fruitful as you possibly could by maintaining a constant living communion with Christ to the extent that your fruit abounds to people all over you, wherever you are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer for this congregation that everyone would maintain the connection, abide. They would allow for correction as you prune, cut away, make more mature. And that we would all aim for production. That we would be not content with six-inch Christianity. We want the full growth, the larger arena, the greatest impact that is possible. May that continue here through these, your servants. In Jesus' name, amen.